It's a joy to be with you all. This is not going to be a sermon. This is going to actually going to be interactive teaching on a topic that's related to Christians, and that's the title of our talk, How to Read a Book, Advice for Christian Readers. And some of you might be thinking, how to read a book? How? What? Um, so the background of this is I just wrote a book with that exact title. It should come out in March or April with Canon Press, my friends up in Moscow, Idaho. And I'm going to give you the gist of the book. So all the slides are their lists from the book, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to peel out a whole bunch of, of illustrations and other stuff along the way, but just give you the pith uh, of the book. So that's our, our goal right now. Now, when, first, when you first hear the title of the book, you might have a question if you've heard of another book with that title. So let me just get that out of the way, because when people hear the title, they say, how does your book differ from that one? Anyone read that book, How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler, at least? At least 10 of you, okay. Uh, many people, it's a famous book, and a lot of people have heard of it. Fewer people have read it. So our book titles, by the way, are not copyrighted, so I'm okay. No plagiarism like, like Harvard. Uh, so, uh, sorry, I have to tease Joe about that. Uh, he did not plagiarize, just the subsequent president plagiarized. So, all right. So my book differs from Mortimer Adler in at least seven ways. So the first way is that I'm a Christian. So Adler... Is a, he wrote as a pagan philosopher when he wrote his book. So that's a very different flavor. Uh, second, I'm writing specifically for Christians. Hence, the subtitle of my book is Advice for Christian Readers. Third, my book is broader in scope. So he's uh, very focused on like the scientific aspects of it. And he, he kind of makes fun of reading for pleasure. I'm all about reading for pleasure as well. So I include that in how to read. Uh, four, my book's, I think, more accessible. Uh, look at the subtitle of his book over there on, on the right, the, right here. The Classic Guide to intelligent reading. And you can tell it's dripping with this academic superiority uh, for a finer taste and high culture. Uh, and I'm, I think I'm more accessible than that. Uh, I'm also way more concise. He's 426 pages, uh, 120 pages just on how to read math and philosophy and social science. Um, and I don't concentrate on specifics like that. Mine's more personal, lots of anecdotes, and I think more relevant. He wrote his book first in 1940. 1940? And he updated it with this uh, co-author, Charles Van Doren, in 1972. That was over 50 years ago. And that means uh, at least 35 years before the iPhone released in 2007. So uh, readers today have new, new questions, new challenges, and I'm attempting to address those. So that's, that's, I just want to get that question out of the way first because I knew someone would have it. Um, I'm going to share, as we go here, a lot of lists. And sometimes people make fun of me for my lists. And I don't apologize for this. So my brain thinks, and I find it logical and helpful. So there you go. All right, <laughs> let's, let's, let's jump in and, uh, and talk about reading. Those are the four main questions I'm going to ask here. Why should you read? How should you read? What should you read? When should you read? That's the big uh, frame of, of this talk. And uh, when people hear that I, I wrote a book on how to read a book, they're like, what, what, what's the point of that? And I say, well, I... I teach people how to read. That's what I do for a living. I'm a professor, so I train students how to read well. And I'm a pastor. I'm training people how to read the Bible well. And anyone can get better at this. And in this talk, I hope I can encourage you to take your reading to the next level. And here's I'm going to do it. First, why should you read? I'm going to start there because it's pointless to talk about other aspects of reading if you're not convinced it's worth doing. So first, I'm going to convince you reading is worthwhile. Second, 
how should you read? And this is where we often suck because we, we learn the basics of reading, but we don't learn how to take it to the next level. And then third, what should you read? Just think about it. Of the amount of material available that you could read, we, we can read only a very tiny grain of sand of it. There's just so, so much to choose from. And then finally, when should you read? I'll, I'll try to help you strategize how to prioritize quality reading. I think we have till 12.30, and I'll be watching the clock. But along the way, if you have a burning question that you think would be helpful for everyone, raise your hand. I'm happy to entertain it. If I finish and there's some leftover time, then I'll just be open Q&A until 12.30. All right, so that's the plan. Let's jump in. Question one, why should you read? I'm going to give you three reasons. First reason is read to live. Jesus says in John 6, 33, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and, what's the next word? Well, that's true as well. There he says spirit and life. <laughs> Sorry, I, mis- I misled you. Uh, spirit and life. Uh, and the most fundamental reason you should read is that you need God's words to truly live. His words are life. That's why Christians value reading so highly. Second reason is read to grow. Don't just read to live, to survive. Read to learn and develop and mature. So you don't read merely to remember facts. You're probably going to forget most of what you read, and that's okay. The cash value of reading is not whether you can remember everything. The benefit of reading is that you grow. It's like what you eat and drink. So do you remember every item of food and drink that you have put into your body? There's, there's no way, unless you have a photographic memory. And I'd call that a, a curse if you have that, that, that kind of memory. Um, but you're alive. You're alive. You've enjoyed enough food and drink to sustain you physically up to this point in time. God has used all that to fuel you, to sustain you. And reading can help do that for you in at least six areas. I told you, lists. Here's another one. Uh, so six, six here right here. Uh, reading can help you mature first intellectually. You can increasingly know and understand what's true. Reading can help you mature, second, in how you see reality. Uh, Good books can function like a time machine, take you to far-off places, even make-believe places, uh, different cultures, different times. And the more time you spend in good books, I think that the larger view you will have of God's world and Thus, your view of reality will be more accurate. Reading can help you mature spiritually. That one's obvious. So you can increasingly bear the fruit of the Spirit by reading sound teaching and good stories. And you can be better prepared, for example, to suffer when trouble comes. Four, reading can help you mature emotionally. So you can learn more about human moods and mindsets. And When you you read a good story, for example, or, or a good proverb, a good poem, that can help you mature emotionally. And number five, it can help you improve how you communicate. You can learn to speak and write more clearly and concisely and colorfully by reading master communicators. Uh, a student last week was asking me for advice on how to get better at writing. And I said, well, who are you reading? Like, read C.S. Lewis if you want to learn how to be clear and concise. And six, uh, reading can help you... Uh, mature in particular aspects of your vocation. So techniques, testimonies, uh, facts that can help you improve how you do what God has called you to do, whether that's serving in a household, whether that's serving in a church or a company or a nation. So that's uh, number two, read to grow. Reason three, 
read to enjoy. So you should not read a book so that you can check it off your list and then broadcast to everyone else, hey, I read that book. If that's your motivation, that's not good. Uh, God invented reading for you so you can enjoy it in a way that honors God. And you enjoy God by enjoying his gifts. One of his gifts is reading. It can be pure joy. In my school, Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, we call it serious joy. It's not, it's not a contradiction. It's a, a way that, I'll say more about that in a bit. So that's why you should, lead, you should read, read to live, to grow, and to enjoy. That's why. Now, you, say, you might say, okay, I'm convinced. Reading is worth doing. But I just need help to do it better. How? How should I do this? How do I do this skillfully? And that leads to this second question. How should you read? And here are seven guidelines I'm going to give you about how to read skillfully. First, this one's the most obvious, is to read carefully. To read carefully means to interpret a text by analyzing what the author intended to communicate by his words. So imagine you get a letter from your fiancé. You're going to read that carefully, right? Uh, So let's break down careful reading into five parts. It's goal, reason, means, method, and need. So goal. The goal of careful reading is to understand what the author meant. Understanding a text presupposes that the text means what the author meant. And our goal as readers is to discover what a text author meant to communicate through his written words. It's not to create meaning, it's to discover meaning. That's the goal. The reason we want to read carefully is you must love your neighbor as yourself. This is the golden rule. I mean, you want to interpret others as you would like them to interpret you. Do you want people to twist your words and say that you intended to communicate that when that's not what you meant? Then don't do that to others. A text meaning is something you discover. Number three, the means is to look at the fish. And you probably have, you're confused. Well, I don't, I don't follow that one. So it's based on a story. Uh, in 1879, there's an essay called The Student, The Fish, and Agassi. Any of you read that essay? My wife. Okay. <laughs> uh, one there. Okay, one over there. <laughs> I have one good student that has followed my advice. But, but where'd you hear about it, by the way? Okay, good. I heard about it from John Pepper. All right. So uh, there's a, a student of natural history recounts in this essay how his professor taught him to look carefully. So the professor began with an unusual assignment. So he pulls a fish out of a jar of specimen in yellow alcohol, and, and he, can, he asked the student to look at this fish with his naked eye. And about 10 minutes later, the student thought, all right, I looked at the fish. And the professor said, no, keep looking. For hours, keep looking. And the professor kept checking in with the student. Do you see it yet? Do you see it yet? Keep looking. Keep looking. He kept this up not just for hours, but for three long days. The student looked at that fish from every possible angle. He felt the inside of the fish. He felt the outside of the fish. He drew the fish with a pencil and paper. That helped him see even more details. He didn't realize there was so much to see, so much that he had overlooked the first time he spent 10 minutes superficially looking at that fish. That's how you read at the most deep level. That's what we want to do with Scripture in particular. So the means is to look very carefully. Uh, The method of careful reading is to discover 
what and how the author is communicating. In other words, you want to trace how the author is arguing. Mortimer Adler calls careful reading coming to terms with an author. So does what you understand a text to mean match what the author intended to communicate? Gene Vaith summarizes the basic forms of literature into three categories, nonfiction, fiction, and poetry. He says nonfiction is the art of truth-telling, fiction is the art of storytelling, and poetry is the art of singing. And you can make an argument with all three styles of literature. When a book makes an argument, it's crucial to trace how the author is arguing. And to trace an argument, you need to understand fundamental concepts like how logic works and how propositions relate to each other. And then finally here, the need. The need for careful reading is that it is a prerequisite to observe, understand, evaluate, feel, apply, and express. Careful reading is crucial for educating people. Now, John Piper describes education as instilling six habits of mind and heart. So here's my paraphrase. And th this chart here has those six items. And this is my applying what I've learned from John Piper here, showing that they build on each other. So t at the bottom there is observe. That means uh, you want to uh, observe accurately and thoroughly. Are you seeing what's actually there in the text? Then you build on that. Uh, understand what you observe clearly. Are you perceiving what the author intended to communicate? And then you build on that by evaluating what you've understood fairly. Is it true? Is it valuable? And you build on that by feeling. You respond. Feel that evaluation intensely and proportionately. Are your emotions in accord with the truth and worth of what you just observed, understood, and evaluated? You want to abhor what's evil, hold fast to what is good, love what God loves, hate what God hates. And you build on that by applying your discoveries to all of life wisely and helpfully. So what? Why does it matter? And then to cap it off, express your discoveries compellingly. Can you communicate what you have observed and understood and evaluated and felt and applied? Can you com communicate all of that in a way that others can know and enjoy that accuracy and clarity and truth and value and helpfulness? So the, the first guideline about how to read is to read carefully. Read carefully. The second guideline can revolutionize how you read. It's like the difference between riding a one-speed bicycle and a multi-speed bicycle. So here it is. Read at different levels. My mentor, D.A. Carson, trained me how to do this. And I've adapted a system that works well for me. So I'll teach you what I do. I read at three different levels, and those levels correspond to the famous advice from philosopher Francis Bacon. Here's what he wrote. Some books are to be tasted. That's one level. Others are to be swallowed. Some few to be chewed and digested. That is, some books are to be read only in parts. Others to be read, but not curiously. And some few to be read wholly and with diligence and attention. Those three levels line up with what I call survey, macro-read, and micro-read. So I'm going to show you. I'll fill this in as I talk. Survey, macro-read, and micro-read. So here's what I mean when I say survey. I mean quickly and efficiently size up a book without reading every word. Macro-read, read every word, 
but move quickly to get the big picture. And then micro-read, rigorously observe, understand, and evaluate what you read. And there are further levels to that one as well. So let me give you some analogies for each of these. For survey, it's like a helicopter ride of Los Angeles, as opposed to a bus tour, as opposed to biking or walking or excavating part of the city. Or to change the metaphor to food, uh, to survey is like cooking in a microwave. Micro-reading is like cooking in an oven. And micro-reading is like cooking in a crock pot or a smoker. So I don't know, the, these, can, these analogies can break down. Uh, it, it may be more helpful to refer to these three levels as layers. The reason I'm, uh, is that three levels are not distinct kinds of reading, but they're, they're cumulative layers. So they build on each other. All micro-reading builds on the other kinds of reading. Let me say a little bit more about each one of these now. So surveying. Surveying is quickly and efficiently sizing up a book without reading every word. It's learning as much as you can from a book in a short amount of time. I, as a professor, well, in my syllabi, I'll have for the reading assignments three columns. Say I want you to micro-read these, macro-read these, and survey these. And for each item for surveying, I'll say spend at least X number of minutes with that resource. Sometimes I'll say, here's a 340-page dissertation. I want you to spend 10 minutes surveying it. And someone just went, mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and that's what my students do when they first hear that assignment. And they're like, I can't do that. No, you can do that. And it's valuable. So let me explain why it's, why it's so valuable. Uh, reason one, it uh, helps you quickly evaluate a book. So who's the author? It, what's the book's genre? What's it about? What's its thesis? Does the author seem competent? Does the book seem important? Is it interesting? Uh, and w- when I require certain resources for my students, it, it's almost like uh, taking a guy into your shop and saying, all right, see this, this uh, table saw? Here's how it works. Now, here's how you do a straight up cut. Here's how you do an angle cut. Uh, here, try it. Okay, all right, you figure that out. Let's put that tool back on the shelf. So you know how to basically use it when you need to use it. And you're aware of that tool. Let me show you another tool. It's, it's like that. There's so many good tools, and it's a way to expose students to certain tools so they'll come back to them later. I want to introduce them to those tools. Number two, determine, uh, surveying helps you determine uh, whether you should purchase a book. You guys do this all the time probably with like Amazon's uh, search inside feature, where before you buy it, or if you, even if you're in like a Barnes & Noble or you're in the name of your bookstore on campus here, and you open up a book and you look at it and think, nah, you put it back. Because what you just did is you quickly surveyed it and you thought, not worth my money. We all know how to do this at least to some degree. I'm just saying it's okay to do this. <laughs> and it's a type of reading. Uh, number three, uh, surveying is a valuable skill because it helps you pre-read a challenging book so that you're prepared to macro-read or micro-read it. So an example, I just uh, got a, a few months ago a 1,000-page PDF of Steve Wellam's new Volume 1 Systematic Theology. It's long and it's detailed. I'm going to micro-read the whole thing. I haven't finished it yet. Before I I dove into that thing, I looked at the table of contents carefully. What's the structure of this book? I wanted to know that, to to x-ray the book before I just jumped in. That helps me just know where I'm at in the process. And number four, uh, surveying is a valuable skill because it helps you determine whether you should stop reading a book. And this may be the moment that's the most valuable for you, what I'm about to say. 
I'm going to free your conscience. You don't have to finish every book you start. Uh, I should put a hat down, take donations. Yeah. Some of you, your consciences are bound, and you think, I paid for that book, someone recommended that book, I started that book, I have to finish that book. And you just walk around like Pilgrim with this big burden on your back. <laughs> be free! Be free. Uh, you don't have to do that. Some books are not worth your time. I start, so I, I, because I, I administrate books for a theological journal called Themelios, I get maybe an average of five to ten new books a day. A lot of books. I can't read every word of those. I give each book about 60 to 120 seconds, and everything after that, they have to earn it. So it's like, uh, life's too short. There are too many good books. Uh, so uh, don't feel like you have to finish the book. This is why surveying is helpful. And number five, surveying is a valuable skill because it helps you determine whether you should read the book more carefully. Um, a mark of a good book for me, when I sit down to start surveying it, not knowing much about it, and before I know it, 10 minutes go by, 30 minutes go by, an hour goes by, I'm like, wow, this is a really good book. Those are the best ones. All right, so that's, that's surveying. And then you build on that with macro reading. So this is, if, if surveying is uh, quickly, efficiently sizing up a book without reading every word, macro reading includes that, but builds on that by reading every word, but you're moving quickly to get the big picture. Do any of you listen to audiobooks? All right? So audiobooks are an example of macro reading. It's not surveying. You're actually hearing every word, but it's not micro-reading. You're not stopping a lot and analyzing and diagramming. It's, it's, that's macro-reading. You, you listen at a normal speed. Micro-reading is rigorously observing, understanding, and evaluate what you're reading. So surveying is fast. Macro-reading takes longer. Micro-reading takes the longest. Micro-reading is the most active reading because you're rigorously tracing the argument, you're marking up the text. That's a good sign of a micro-reader. You're marking up the text, all the first and seconds and the therefores, and you're, you're you know, you know, starring really good quotes. You're, you're, you're tracking the argument. So that's reading at different levels. I love that. Hopefully that, that helps you. That's the guideline number two. Uh, now seven, guideline number three of the seven is read systematically. So reading systematically refers not to how you read any one book in isolation. It's how you read books in relation to each other. And there are four aspects to this. One is to analyze. So you analyze a book when you carefully read it by surveying, macro-reading, or micro-reading. Diversify. You diversify by reading other books, books on the same topic and different ones, books upholding the same perspective and different ones, books in the same genre and different ones. And you compare. You compare by noting how various books are similar and dissimilar, and you synthesize. You do this by perceiving how various books interrelate and integrate. So you categorize arguments and approaches. You show how they relate to each other. Reading systematically is reading comprehensively. It requires penetrating insight that is deep and broad. It's the most demanding type of reading because to do this well requires the ability to deeply understand concepts and to perceptively make connections and draw conclusions. The brother who just came back from the UK, what did you write your dissertation on? Psalms and Jonah. Okay, I, I don't know anything about you. I just, I, I heard. And my guess is that what you did for that dissertation is read a whole lot about the Psalms, a whole lot about Jonah, a whole lot about Old Testament theology, and you had to do a lot of integrative thinking and, 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 and writing. Is that about right? 
Yeah, see, that's how, that's how dissertations work, is you, you have to read a whole bunch of stuff and then put it together in a way that you think coheres with reality. It's hard. It's really hard. Let me give you an illustration of how you can do this practically. In 2021, 2020, 2021, uh, like many of you, I became increasingly concerned that our culture was just so rapidly making sin look normal and making righteousness seem strange. And I attempted to make sense of it by reading systematically, and that resulted in my writing an article about it. I just picked some of what helped me. The article is called 10 Resources That Have Helped Me Make Sense of Our Current Culture and How Christians Are Responding to It. That was an, that's an example of reading systematically. Number four, how should you read? Read repeatedly. So you want to read great works more than once. And you already know this to be the case with the Bible. None, none of you would say, I don't need to read Romans again. I already read it once, right? That's crazy talk because you know that you can read Romans every day till the day you die and you're not going to get everything there. Uh, now, that's not the case for non-inspired literature, but there are works that are not God-breathed that are worth multiple reads. Those are the, that's the greatest literature. I'm thinking of classic literature. And, and some of you, um, maybe you read classic literature in junior high or high school or college or, or all of them. I don't think it's a waste of time to read some of the greatest literature at each of those stages. So my, my college, Bethlehem College, has a great books emphasis. And someone might say, well, I already read that Shakespeare book in high school, so why would I want to read it again in college? And a response to that is, you're not the same person you are when you read it in high school. And your understanding of that book is going to deepen when you read it again. So if it's really good literature, it's worth reading more than once. So that, that's why I say read repeatedly. Guideline five is read without distractions. The most prominent distractions today by far are gadgets like smartphones and tablets and computers and televisions. People are addicted to screens, social media, texting, email, videos. So don't be like that guy. That is Doug the dog, the golden retriever in the Pixar movie Up, who gets so easily distracted that at any moment he may snap his head and exclaim, squirrel, right? In order to read well, you have to be able to focus, and focus means put aside distractions. Let me suggest how to do that. Number one, turn off notifications on your devices, your computer, your tablet, your phone. You're like, I can do that? You should do that. Uh, my phone makes a, a special vibration only when my wife texts me. So if you call me, I don't even, don't even know it. I'll find out later. You're like, what's the phone for? Well, not for talking. It's, it's for, well, sometimes it's for talking. All right. Number two, don't incessantly check your email or text messages or social media or whatever else distracts you. Set blocks of time to do it. Number three, schedule blocks of time to read and treat those blocks as do not disturb appointments. I have a clear conscience when I do this. I will set aside, say, from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. to read. And if someone says, hey, can you meet on that day at 10, 10 a.m. or whatever, if it's in that block, I'll say, I actually have an appointment then. I don't think I'm lying. It's an appointment. It's, just, it's an appointment with a book. So I, I take this seriously. Uh, so you might think that's too serious. I, I'm a research professor, so maybe I've got to be more serious than normal, but I, I find that helpful. Number four, say no to spending most of your free time watching videos or shows or scrolling social media for eye candy in the form of entertaining videos, um, like memes and pictures. So just train yourself to develop habits that cultivate a taste that prefers good books. 
That's guideline number five. Number six, read with eyes to see and ears to hear. This is from the words of Jesus. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for failing to read this way. What does that mean, to read with eyes to see and ears to hear? I think it means to truly understand. That means that you should read with a heart posture to obey, to not rebel. That should be your posture whenever you read. Sometimes we assume that a guy doesn't understand some spiritual truth because he's not smart enough. But actually, it's not just that he's not thinking hard enough. It could be, it might be, that he's watching videos that show sexually charged nudity. That could be the reason that he's not reading with understanding. That's why it's so important to read with a heart posture that's submitting to God and is not rebelling against him. And finally, read with serious joy. That might sound like an oxymoron. Read with serious joy. That's the tagline for our school, Bethlehem College Seminary, serious joy. So sometimes people will kind of make fun of it, like trying to smirk, but like not smile. What is, what is serious joy? How do you have this? Uh, I find C.S. Lewis helpful here. He says that a serious reader is not a solemn reader in the sense of unsmiling and long-faced, but, quote, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, energetic. That's it. Genuine, resolute, earnest. That should read. Serious joy. And I should qualify that reading for pleasure does not always mean reading without challenge. It can be enjoyable to do something that's hard, like hike up a mountain. Some of you do that for fun, right? And it's great if you, if you think it's fun. I mean, it's hard, and that's part of the fun. Uh, and it can be enjoyable and rewarding to read a good book, a great book that stretches you. That can be reading for pleasure. So that's how to read. But you won't be putting your skills to good use if you're reading the wrong books. So question three, what should you read? What should you read? seven recommendations. Number one, read the book by the author of life. God wrote a book. God wrote a book. Reading the Bible matters more than everything else you read combined. So prioritize reading God's words over man's words every single day. Number two, read what helps you be vigilant about your character and doctrine. Watch your life and watch your doctrine. Both matter. You say, well, which one matters more? Which one matters more, the the left wing of the airplane or the right wing? (laughs) Life and doctrine, you watch them both. So read what helps you with those. Here are three examples of specific writings God has used to help me be vigilant about how I live. One is to meditate on specific passages of Scripture that focus on the type of character that God esteems. Thinking of like 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Number two, outside the Bible, the stories that have most formed my character are the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. For example, when everyone around you is believing lies, what you need is the smell of burnt marsh wiggle. <laughs> and some of you don't know what I'm talking about. So you need to read The Silver Chair. Number three, Back to 2020 and 2021, those unusually difficult years for leaders, pastors, professors in America in particular, some leaders wilted under pressure, emotional pressure from highly reactive people in the midst of tensions about politics, ethnic partiality, the infectious COVID-19 disease, 
government lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccinations, intolerant demands growing from expressive individualism. And it was during that time of turmoil that I read a book by Edwin Friedman, The Failure of Nerve. He's a, I think a Jewish atheist, but uh, I was astounded with his common grace insights about leadership that directly apply to parents, pastors, and professors. He taught me that good leaders are stable and sober-minded. Good leaders don't anxiously react to highly reactive people by herding the whole group to adapt to the least mature members in the group. Good leaders don't let criticism ruin them. Good leaders recognize that criticism comes with the territory of good leadership. Really helpful insight from a good book. So that helped me be vigilant about my character. Number three, read what helps you excel at what God has called you to do. So what has God called you to do? Uh, He calls Christians to be faithful church members. He calls males to be faithful men, sons, brothers, husbands, fathers, grandfathers. He calls females to be faithful women, daughters, sisters, wives, mothers, grandmothers. God has called individuals to do various jobs, paid and unpaid. He's called us all the kinds of worthy vocations. So read whatever helps you excel what God has called you to do. Number four, read what helps you better understand reality. Better understanding reality helps you better understand and worship God. And here are three overlapping categories of books that can help you here. Uh, Great books, stories about history, and fiction. So the category great books typically refers to classics like Plato's Republic. Uh, Classic books have earned their privileged position by proving to generations that they are top quality. Now, does everything in the classics align with the Bible? No, not even close. Uh, Every non-inspired book we read requires discernment. And in such cases, as Augustine argues, we may glean from classics in a way similar to how the Israelites plundered the Egyptians to build God's tabernacle. Great books can help you mature to develop stable, sober-mindedness. Great books can stress test what you believe by subjecting you to contrary ideas and by helping you form deep-rooted convictions about reality. That's why my older daughters are reading books in the integrative humanities or omnibus courses from Logos Online School. So my school, Bethlehem College, features Omnia as an extended academic core. We love that. We, we call our, our program Great Books in Light of the Greatest Book for the Sake of the Great Commission. Read stories about history, second. This is my favorite way to learn history, by the way. Um, it's so much more interesting to learn about key names and dates and events in the context of a gripping story. It makes you feel like you know the main characters. And then third, read fiction. You think, what? why did you add that? It's partly part of my story. I quit reading fiction in college and graduate school. And the, the, I, the, the motivation was, I need to focus right now on exegesis and theology, and I don't have time for anything else. I was laser-focused on exegesis and theology for years. And uh, one time, my pastor at the time, Mike Bullmore, asked me, so what what fiction are you reading? And I I thought my answer would please him. Well, actually, I I don't have time for fiction. I'm I'm reading these other more lofty things. And he said, oh, Andy. And he he pled with me to reconsider, and he was right. I was wrong. Uh, Reading Good fiction is valuable for at least three reasons. One, good fiction helps you better understand God and God's creation, particularly human nature. Another is that good fiction engages your mind 
and your imagination and your emotions in a way that nonfiction doesn't. And another reason is that good fiction is a gift from God for us to enjoy. And we should treasure God by enjoying his gifts. So I like to have lots of books going at the same time. And usually the fiction I'm, I'm reading is it's almost always uh, audio, not with my eyes, because my eyes are rest. And I take it in that way at times where I, I don't need full concentration. Number five, read what you wholesomely enjoy. And the type of reading I'm describing here is pure leisure. It's reading for pleasure, reading for joy. One professor, Alan Jacobs, calls this reading at whim, W-H-I-M. In C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, the senior demon Screwtape rebukes his apprentice Wormwood like this. You, first of all, allow the patient to read a book he really enjoyed because he enjoyed it and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his new friends. Satan and his demons don't want you to read what you wholesomely enjoy. Recommendation six, read what models outstanding writing. If you want to write well, then read outstanding writers. And recommendation seven, read what people you respect and trust recommend. There are just too many reading options for one person to filter. It's much wiser to work as a team and learn from the reading recommendations of people you, you trust and respect. So we have considered why you should read, how you should read, and what you should read. There's one last practical question to ask, and that's when should you read? The short answer is read whenever you responsibly can. The word responsibly is important. All right, so here are seven tips for making reading part of your routine. First, start small. It's better to read something, something good, than to read nothing at all, even if that means you start with just five minutes a day. You may not be able to run a marathon, but could you walk one lap around the track, just a quarter mile? Start small and gradually go further as your endurance increases. Tip two, plan what to read. So develop a, a feasible reading plan. Don't worry about getting it perfect. You can continually tweak it along the way. But having a plan is better than having no plan. So here are some suggestions to help you plan what to read. First, follow a Bible reading plan. Don't worry about getting behind. What matters most is that you are constantly feeding on God's words. What's the name of the one you like, Jenny? Uh, to the Word Bible Plan. That's she, she loves that. And you get through the Bible once every nine months? or Yeah. And then second, plan to diversify your reading. Read from various time periods, old and new. Read diverse styles of literature. Third, read multiple books at a time. Now, that, that doesn't work for everyone, but I find that to be helpful. Here's why. If you have a handful of options, then some of those may be more appropriate given the time of day or your mood than other ones. If you have just one to go to, you might think, I'm, I don't feel like reading that one, so I can't read it all. So you could have like a, a weighty theological tome, like John Calvin's Institutes, and an accessible devotional, like Jay Packer's Knowing God, maybe a fiction book. My daughter really likes Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. I think it's too long. There's a biography. My wife said, no, it's just right. Uh, you can have a biography like, like Ian Murray's biography, the long one on Martin Lloyd-Jones. You can have a current events book like Thomas Sowell on race and economics, something like that. We have several things going. And if one of those books strikes you as particularly appealing at a certain time of day, go for it. And then fourth here, plan to study a particular topic. 
you may decide to study a portion of scripture in depth or an influential and destructive ideology like critical theory or the prosperity gospel. Number three, number three, listen to audiobooks. Okay, so my first gift to you today was that you don't have to finish every book you read. My second gift to you today is that reading audiobooks counts as reading. Some of you are purists, and you insist that that doesn't count, and I think that's nonsense. It's merely a different kind of reading. Someone else is reading it aloud. So I know I told you like this. Here are 11 benefits <laughs> of audiobooks. All right. Audiobooks are convenient when it would be difficult to read a print book. When we came to meet with your church this morning, my oldest daughter, who loves books, said, should I bring a book? I'm just not sure if there'll be no time we're just sitting around. She always wants to have a book nearby. Well, she doesn't have a phone yet. She's only 15. But if, for me, I don't have to worry about that because I've got thousands of books right here wherever I go. So that, that's really valuable, isn't it? Uh, number two, audiobooks are convenient to store. And three, to transport. If you've ever moved, had to move your office, you know what I'm talking about. I, I have only about 1,000 print books. And my library has over 60,000 items in it. Audiobooks and, and electronic books are really helpful. Number four, audiobooks can be easier to understand and remember. And that depends on your learning style. My wife and I are similar in the sense that for some kinds of, of topics, we actually get more out of it if we, if we listen while we're doing something, like mowing or driving or folding laundry, than if we just sit down and read it. Now we're, I know we're wired differently, but that, that's where audiobooks can be helpful. Number five, audiobooks are an incredible deal. Just think about this. You can listen to a professional reader read a book to you anytime you want at a speed and volume that you can adjust. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, number six, audiobooks are delightful. My favorite audiobook reader is Jim Dale. He performs the seven Harry Potter books. He's amazing. My second favorite reader is Andy Serkis, who masterfully performs Tolkien's The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. In the, the movies, uh, he plays Gollum, which is one of the few things the movies got just right. Number seven, audiobooks give your eyes a break. That's more important for some of us than others. I'm, now, I'm just at the stage where I need reading glasses, uh, so my, my notes in front of me are very large, so I can do this without them. Um, that's... I use my eyes constantly to read. So it's nice to keep reading without my eyes. Uh, number eight, audiobooks can be a better option than reading with your eyes, especially for books you want to macro read, like novels and biographies. And number nine, audiobooks can helpfully supplement reading certain books with your eyes. Sometimes I'll walk on my treadmill, I have a walking desk, and I'll have the Greek text of the New Testament open, and I'll hit play on an English translation of the New Testament. And I'll just follow along for an hour. That's, that's great. That'd be really hard to do without the audiobook. Uh, number 10, audiobooks can enhance visual reading. You can engage multiple senses by reading with your ears and with your eyes at the same time. And finally, audiobooks are ideal for road trips. Our family loves to listen. Yesterday we went to Santa Claus Beach, which is like an hour and a half from here. And... Uh, we listen to audiobooks, uh, uh, something called the Incorrigibles, we listen to together on the way back. Okay, so that's tip number 
three, here's tip number four, plan when and where to read. So have you thought strategically about where you read? You can read while you're sitting or standing, stationary or moving. Figure out ideal combinations of place and time for your optimal reading. And then when should you read is at least six different times. Read shortly after you wake up. This is I, the, I think this is the ideal time to feed on God's words. Create a routine so that your reading time and your spot is consistent and automatic. When I say automatic, I mean you don't debate, am I going to read the Bible today? It's not even a question. It's, I'm, I just woke up. This is what I do. It's, it's in your routine. It's automatic. Second, read during scheduled blocks of time. Three, read during predictable, redeemable times, like while you're walking. could be while you're, sh- you're showering. They make ways you can do this with Bluetooth. You can put a, a speaker in your shower. I know that might sound like overkill, but sometimes it's helpful. Uh, you can do it while you're traveling. Number four, read during unscheduled free times, like when you're waiting in a line. Or like I've noticed being here in Los Angeles the last week, pretty much every time you're driving, you'll be stuck in traffic somewhere. There you go. You can uh, plan, plan to read then or when you're waiting for a meeting to start. Number five, read before you go to sleep. This is a fantastic way to end the day and prepare for deep sleep. And then number six, read on retreats and vacations. You can schedule a half day or an entire day or more to relax and refresh, rest by reading. That's tip number four. Now number five, read consistently. Would you rather eat several times each day or eat one large meal one time per week? That's an easy one, right? So treat reading like you treat eating. Prioritize a daily routine over reading big chunks sporadically. And it doesn't have to be either or. You could have a routine where you're reading daily and you could devote large chunks of time to reading, like on a Sunday afternoon. You could read a whole book of the Bible in one sitting. The key is that you consistently read, make a plan, stick with it. Tip number six, read with other people. So team up with a friend or a group of friends to discuss what you read. That's going to help you read more carefully and systematically, and you can benefit from the insights of others. And then tip number seven, read responsibly. C.S. Lewis distinguishes two types of reading, escape and escapism. Escape is fine, like good fiction, it's fine. Escapism is not. He says there's more to life than reading. So too much of a good thing is not good. Did you know that if you drink too much water, you can die of water intoxication? So do good things proportionately. You have many responsibilities as a Christian, and you would be disobeying God if you chose to read so much that you fail to meet other obligations. So those are my four big uh, answers to the four big questions. Why, how, what, and when should you read? Now it's your turn to ask some questions, and we have 15 minutes. Who wants to be first? Right here. What audiobook programs? Uh, I use Audible primarily uh, when we buy a, uh, the highest level of that because we listen to so many as a family. We use audiobooks with Canon Press. What's, what's, it's called the Canon, Canon Plus app. Um, Sherwood we just subscribe to. Uh, yeah, I'll stop there. Right here, Joe. Yeah, questions came in. So. Oh, you've got like an official thing. You want this? There you go. 
Oh, yeah, Mike's going around too? Okay. Um, I, here it is. I couldn't keep up with all of the lists. Is there any way we can get the PowerPoint? Um, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, it's straight out of the book, which comes out in March or April, but okay. yeah, I guess so. Okay, this, maybe, don't, don't upload yeah. it online, though. I don't want this. Yeah, let me care about that. All right, so we'll see. Okay. okay. Um, and then the second question is, could you, uh, could you maybe list three books or so that were most influential in your life, whether oh, fiction or... I hate that question because uh, there's, whoever asked it, I don't hate you. I hate the question because uh, I don't even start. So influential in what way and for what? Yeah. Um, okay, here's what comes to mind immediately. I'm just going to pick three books that I asked this lady to read when we started dating. Remember what they were? Pleasures of God by, by John Piper, Desiring God by John Piper, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, edited by Piper and Grudem. I picked those because I want to make sure she's Calvinist and Christian hedonist, and she's not an evangelical feminist. So, uh, there, I'll just leave it there. All right, other, <laughs> back here, yeah. You read a, a book or uh, even on a chapter level, do you read um, from start to finish or do you go from the beginning to the conclusion and then in the middle or how do yeah, you do it that? It totally depends on the book. So some books I'll pick up and I'll read, I'll look at the table of contents, I'll read the intro, I'll read the conclusion, then I'll read the last paragraph of each chapter and I'll decide if I want to keep going. It depends. I know you think you could do that. Yeah, there are no rules about this. <laughs> where am I going next? Should I, should I let you guys tell me where to go next or should I just pick? Joe, what should I do? Okay, right. Hello. Oh, there we go. Um, Are you the how to read a oh, how to look at a fish guy? You were, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Um, how do you know what layer of reading to apply to a book? There's not one right way. It depends on your goals in the situation. So it could be I have only this amount of time, so here's what I'm gonna give it. Or it could be I don't know if it's it's worth my time, so I'm gonna check it out and see. And then you determine I think this would be a valuable way to be a good steward of my time to invest macro reading this book. So it's, it's, you need wisdom. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Over here or here? How about if you have a mic, you just like start talking, and I'll say next, and then I'll know who's next. Yeah. All right. Have you ever uh, read Mission of God by Dr. Joe Booth? And what's your thoughts about I it? I just got a PDF of that a few months ago, and it's on my list of things to read. So I, I know he's post-millennial, which I'm not. But a friend of mine who's also not post-mill said, other than that, it's really valuable. So he, I, I'm going to check it out. So I don't have a, an opinion yet. Okay. Other, other questions? Just talking to the mic. You're a professor, so this is going to be a hard question. Yeah. Have you read my two books? <laughs> What's his name? What's your name again? <laughs> okay. Next, next, quick. What do I think about a chronological Bible reading? Plan. Plan. Yeah, that's, that's worth doing. Uh, we have a, a, yeah, we have a chronological Bible in our home, and I've, I've not in, really strongly encouraged my, my girls to make that their through-the-year reading plan because God gave us literature, and I'd rather us understand it as literature and not dice it all up and, as our main intake of Bible. But it has its place. It could be valuable, but I wouldn't want to say that's the best way to do it, but it's a way that's... Not sinful. I just don't think it's best. Yeah, she wants to follow up. Quick, yeah. Yeah, I started to do a podcast with her. 
the, the book, the third book, I, I, it's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Yeah, it's, we called it the blue book, but now it's a different shade. Right, who has a mic? Um, yep, what this. book from the Chronicles of Narnia series do you reread the most, and why? Uh, I usually just listen straight through them, so I don't know if there's one I've read more than the, than the rest. But my favorite one is Horse and His Boy. It's just a great adventure story. Actually, I'll probably talk about it in tonight's sermon. It, it just kind of oozes out of me, so that will probably happen. Yeah, who has a mic? Just talk into your mic. Do you have any guidelines on how to evaluate your inferences and how much awareness do you or attention do you pay to your presuppositional knowledge before you pick up a book? Because, I mean, obviously we all, I'm sure you can follow all these rules and come up with a completely different interpretation sure. of something. Right? Yeah. So, and What I, guidelines do you use? Yeah. Yeah. All those guidelines I gave, uh, if you don't believe that God's word is completely truthful and without error, and you don't, like, if your worldview's off, those principles, you're not going to be able to apply them wisely. So what he's saying is, in order to be a, a wise reader, you have to have the correct presuppositions about what is real, what's reality, who is God. All of that's necessary for you to make wise choices. So in order to evaluate the value of a book means you have to be a wise man to begin with. So it's kind of a, a hermeneutical spiral with, with your character and your understanding you can increasingly understand and know reality better and make wiser choices. That's another good reason why we want to benefit from the reading recommendations of other people who are beyond us and, and their expertise. Like, I'm sure this fellow's two books are an example <laughs> of, of that. I have another question over here. I got the mic, too, on top of it. Wave your hand. Here. Here. Um, what do you think about Dake's Annotated Bible? A what Bible? Dake's Annotated Bible. Are you familiar with it? I don't think I've heard of that. Is he in this Sojourner's group? <laughs> no, it's a really, really old okay. Bible. Oh, okay. Very old Bible. It's a good Bible. I'm sorry, I don't know about well, it. Well, you need to look it up. Okay. <laughs> if you have the mic, to start talking. Uh, hi. What was the Jewish atheist Common Grace book? Edwin Friedman, F-R-I-D-M-A-N. He's been dead for a while, but his insights are still amazing. Joe Rigney is... Uh, He's, he's a good friend of mine. He's, I just yesterday endorsed his next book on leadership, which is basically the Christian version of Edwin Friedman. It should be out in a month or two with Canon, uh, Canon Press. In all the research that you did for both PhDs, did you ever read out loud? And if so, did it help you remember and understand with depth and clarity what you just was experiencing? Yeah, reading aloud is really helpful. Mostly I read out loud when I'm trying to memorize scripture. So I've, um, in the last several years, I've preached as sermons, the book of Romans or the book of 1 Corinthians, and the whole sermon is me reciting it. But to do that takes about a, at least a year of daily memorizing, and the way I do that is by, by reciting it out loud, recording myself, replaying it, catching mistakes. That, it's very valuable. Now, if I'm just... In other settings, I don't do that as much. Um, my daughter Kara does that when she reads Shakespeare because she loves to, 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 to act it out and speak it. But I guess the times I've read out loud has been when I'm trying not to fall asleep. Uh, or I read a sentence and I keep tripping on it. So I'm like, let's try this out loud, uh, and, and then maybe I'll, I'll catch it. Good. You must be an educator. Are you an educator? Okay. Okay. All right. Just start talking if you have a mic. 
Hi. Um, with regards to your presentation earlier, you mentioned about the word feel uh, during your, yeah. uh, on the survey. Yeah. So my thoughts about that is like uh, it can be when you're reading a book and um, it can be misinterpreted because you're using your emotions instead of using your thinking process. Amen. And that's why it says feel appropriately. So uh, we are whole, whole people. Some call it a psychosomatic unity. We're, we're mind, we're body, we're one thing. So we don't want to think we're just a brain without feeling. So I'm just trying to acknowledge when we read well, we read well as person, and that involves our feelings. And good readers are feeling the right way. So if someone is feeling sinfully, that's bad. But we want to try to feel appropriately. For, here's an example. If I read a book and it's just filled with heresy in it, like heresy about LGBT or uh, something like that, I should actually feel a righteous indignation about how that is wrong and hurting people because bad theology hurts people. Uh, I should feel that. I should. Uh, I think it's appropriate. It would be wrong to not have that feeling. Does that make sense? Okay. What and how much do you mark or underline when you yes. might read a book? So uh, I have a different system for if it's a print book or if it's a PDF or if it's a Logos Bible software. But basically, uh, I'm constantly marking the logical indicators, the, the, the lists, the first, second, thirds. I've got, I, I, I use pink for what I think is theological or grammatical error. I use yellow for this is good, green for like the lists, uh, blue for this is really good, uh, underlining, like double underlining for like this is the best part. Uh, so, I, so you develop your own system so that you can go back through a book and find the, find the highlights. Hey, say the name again of the author who, uh, the Christian author who's um, coming out with a book equivalent to Edwin Friedman. Joe Rigney, R-I-G-N-E-Y. Thank you. Thank you. He's great. Just start the, talking. The question like. is about a topic of eschatology. What books would you recommend in order to understand the biblical eschatology, or what books would you recommend to overread in order to make it clarify? Yeah, I've, trying to understand what the Bible teaches about the end times, a good place to start is if you have an ESV study Bible, go to the book of Revelation and read the introduction. And in that introduction, it has charts that can compare and contrast different approaches, amill, pre-mill, post-mill, pre-trib, post-trib, et cetera, and just explain the, the views. So that, that will help you get clear. And then there are, there are debate books. There are like three views on the millennium, et cetera, where it can help you lay out the, the, the views. There's a systematic theology that MacArthur and Mayhew uh, edited that has a section on eschatology that could be helpful. You could read Grudem, Grudem Systematic Theology and contrast that, etc. That'd be a, a basic place to start. I teach a whole class on this, so I have uh, actually a bibliography that's over 100 pages long of just titles. So if you want to connect with me, I could share that with you. Okay, next question. Um, yep. Over here. Oh, sorry. who's talking? Wave your hand. Right over here. here. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Um, so, um, sorry. How... How do you cultivate a love of reading in your children other than reading out loud to them? Because yeah. for me personally, I'm, I'm visually impaired, so reading out loud is really difficult. Yeah, she said, how do you cultivate a love? Oh, I don't have to repeat the questions. That's a microphone. I'm pulling out my, my MacBook here because it's, it's uh, 1227. This is going to be fast. I have an appendix in the book that answers your question, and I think it's 20 two ways to answer it. <laughs> Let me just double check here. Uh, I like lists. Uh, yeah, it's 22 tips for cultivating a culture of reading for your children. I'm just going to briefly, really fast rip through some of, the, some of these, okay? Uh, start reading to your children when they are infants. And by the way, a lot of this is what this lady has done in our home. 
Two, fill your home book. Fill your home with print books. Put them everywhere. Three, don't feature a large screen as the centerpiece of your living room or bedrooms. Four, routinely use your books. Five, routinely check out lots of good library books. Good library books. Six, shepherd your children regarding harmful ideologies like the ones they'll find in library books. Seven, routinely read books aloud as a family. Seven, routinely listen to audiobooks. Eight, uh, that was eight. Nine, listen to audiobooks on road trips. Ten, teach your children how to read. Uh, Eleven, encourage your children to read books they enjoy. Twelve, routinely discuss books. Thirteen, be part of a community that loves reading good books. Fourteen, give books as gifts on special occasions like birthdays and Christmas. Fifteen, adapt your strategies if one of your children has a learning disability, like dyslexia. Sixteen, give your child a bedside lamp for reading. We have one on each of their beds for nighttime and early morning. Seventeen, limit how much your children watch screens for entertainment. Eighteen, don't give children unlimited access to phones, tablets, or computers. Nineteen, schedule daily times for your children to read for pleasure. Twenty, routinely read books yourself. Your kids are going to be watching you. Twenty-one, have a contagious love for books. And twenty-two, pray that God would firmly establish a love for God-honoring reading in your children. And each of those has a paragraph or more underneath it, but that's, that's the headings. Joe, it's yours. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. Cultivating love for reading in this group today. Excellent. If you guys have questions that are still lingering, you can come up and maybe take a few more questions afterwards. So we'll just hang out over here. Uh, But let me pray for us and ask the Lord to bless us for the rest of the day. Father, we thank you for the way that you bless us. Lord, we thank you for this word uh, that you give us. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you have created books, that you created reading, and that we're able to enjoy this. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do this for your glory, Lord, and to find pleasure in, uh, in this exercise while seeking to glorify you. Pray that you would bless the rest of this day. We love you. Amen.